Hello everybody and welcome to another Pillsbury in-flight audio podcast. In this podcast we're going to be looking at aircraft repossessions and give some practical steps as to the do's and don'ts that will hopefully provide some useful guidance and tips. My name's Graham Tyler, partner and co-leader of the asset finance team here at Pillsbury and I'm delighted to be joined by one of my partners from our New York team, Melissa Jones-Pruce. Thanks for the introduction, Graham, and it's great to be able to talk about this today. Now, Melissa, clearly the COVID-19 pandemic has had a catastrophic effect on the aviation industry. And yet so far, there haven't been that many airline failures or contested repossessions. What's been going on? That's right, Graham. Amazingly, only around 25 airlines ceased operations last year, despite a 65% global drop in demand compared to 2019. Airlines benefited from support on a number of fronts, including government bailouts, lessor and financier support, as well as access to the capital markets. Governments provided over $72 billion in assistance, although these funds were not evenly distributed and U.S. airlines in particular reaped the most benefit. Some 58 of the $72 billion was provided to U.S. airlines under the CARES Act. U.S. airlines also benefited the most from access to the capital markets, including mileage program-backed issuances and WTCs. And of course, lessors and financiers also supported the industry by agreeing to rent and loan payment deferrals and other types of restructurings. In addition, we saw lessors in particular increase sale and leaseback activity, which provided an important source of liquidity for the airlines. That's right, and all of this support has allowed the vast majority of airlines to weather what has hopefully been the worst of the storm. But needless to say, this vital short-term liquidity has dramatically increased the medium and long-term debt burden for airlines. The deferred rent and loan payments will need to be repaid, as will the massive government loans and other emergency debt that airlines incurred. And as passenger demand rebounds, we can expect that financial assistance to airlines will start to dry up. And while some airlines are well positioned for the recovery, it's clear that a significant number remain cash strapped and burdened with debt. And this situation will be exacerbated by the expected lag in the recovery of business travel, which, as we all know, is critical to so many airlines business models. And in this context, we could see far more airline distress and failures in 2021 and 2022 than we did in 2020. That aside, it's been great to see the industry players yet again rally round to support each other. And while it may be true to say that there weren't many viable alternatives, that in fact belies the general approach that's been taken by so many. It really has been quite remarkable at times. But that said, putting aside the pandemic, even under normal market conditions, it's always better to try and work towards consensual return of the aircraft wherever possible. And in fact, nine times out of 10, that can be achieved through sensible dialogue. No lessor or creditor obviously wants to be the last person at the party and get caught up in the insolvency of an airline. So early planning and continued and constructive dialogue is definitely the way to go. While I'm certainly not advocating that creditors simply roll over, finding a commercial compromise, which necessitates both sides taking some pain, can often be preferable to becoming embroiled in costly and lengthy repossession proceedings, especially since the full recovery of sums owed is often not achievable in those circumstances. Absolutely right. Indeed, that very word repossession can be quite emotive and conjure up contested matters going through the courts with huge associated costs, which quite simply isn't always the case. However, as we know from our own experiences, sometimes this consensual we're all in it together approach just simply runs out of steam and a leasing company or financial institution has to take a stronger approach. If that stage is reached, then it really is gloves off time. 
Now, we're not going to be speaking here about jurisdiction-specific frameworks like Chapter 11 proceedings, but rather a more generic look at things. To kick things off, we might as well start with the Cape Town Convention. And so, Melissa, at a very high level, what does the convention aim to do? Sure. So the Cape Town Convention creates a standardized international framework that's designed to bring speed, certainty, and cost savings to repossession, deregistration, and export of aircraft across jurisdictions. Now, what does that mean in practice? Let's start first with repossession. The Cape Town Convention generally provides for what are called self-help remedies. That is, unless a contracting state has made a declaration requiring a court order to exercise any of these remedies. And self-help essentially means that you can go ahead and repossess and remarket the aircraft without the consent of the debtor or a court order. This concept, of course, exists in common law countries such as the U.S. and the U.K., but is quite foreign to most civil law countries. So the Cape Town Convention is a huge benefit in those countries, which incidentally make up the majority of the approximately 80 contracting states. But that said, self-help is often simpler in theory than in practice, particularly when we're talking about seizing aircraft at highly secured international airports. Uh, in the U.S., for example, a court order is still required if the repossession would otherwise breach the peace, which, as you can imagine, um, you know, invol involuntarily seizing a commercial aircraft at an international airport would be prone to do. But this process is still much quicker than a full-fledged contested repossession proceeding in a non-Cape Town country. Now, of course, things are far more complicated if the airline enters insolvency. Definitely, Graham. But the Cape Town Convention can be a big help there as well, since it has an insolvency provision modeled on Section 1110 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, which is designed to allow lenders and lessors to obtain speedy relief even in bankruptcy. This provision is referred to as Alternative A, and it provides for a defined waiting period after an insolvency filing, after which the airline has to elect one of three options. They can either return the aircraft, cure their defaults and perform their obligations going forward, or agree to a restructuring with the creditor. While this insolvency provision is a powerful tool, it is important to note that it does not apply to all Cape Town countries, and the waiting period can vary depending on the elections made by the contracting state. So it's critical to consult with local counsel to determine what rules apply in bankruptcy in the jurisdiction you're looking at. Now, going back to the repossession side of things, once you have the aircraft in your possession, of course, that's not the end of the story. No, but wouldn't that be nice if it were? Uh, but seriously, when it comes to commercial aircraft, lessors and secured parties should have obtained an IDERA or a deregistration POA at the time the deal closed. They should then be able to deregister and export the aircraft from that jurisdiction, ideally by simply presenting this power of attorney to the local aviation authority. It is worth saying, however, that the Cape Town Convention remains relatively untested in the courts around the world. But it does appear that most countries are taking what are, after all, international treaty obligations seriously, even if sometimes it seems to take them a little bit of time to come to the right conclusions. So aside from the Cape Town remedies, let's start looking at some of the initial legal and practical steps that we would be looking at coordinating in a scenario where we're preparing for a possible repossession. Let's do it. Clearly, there needs to be an initial focus on the contractual documents, not only as regards the specific defaults, but also are there any cross-default provisions? What options are there under the security documents? For example, does it make sense to enforce rights under the mortgage or under the share charge? All these factors need to be quickly and carefully evaluated. And we also need to check that all security filings are up to date. 
It's also common for a creditor to physically hold some forms of security, such as cash deposits and letters of credit. And it's important to ensure that everything that's required to be done or provided in order to foreclose on this collateral is in place. There's often no room for error there, particularly when you're dealing with an LC bank. If the airline has commenced or is in the vicinity of commencing an insolvency proceeding, it's also a good idea to have a bankruptcy lawyer take a look at the documents to assess the implications for drawing and applying these types of security. And of course, in parallel with this is the metal. Often a creditor's recourse is only to the asset and not much else. So turning to the asset for a moment, let's take a look at some of the early stage checks that are necessary, many of which would have been done at the outset of the deal. Of primary importance is to try and establish where the aircraft and its engines are. Are they being operated? And if so, to where? Is any of the equipment in maintenance or perhaps in the current climate parked and in storage? A good lease manager and servicer is really going to be earning their dollars now. It's also crucial to team up with good and reputable local council who know the workings of the local aviation authority. This will be important in determining whether the aviation authority will honour a unilateral request by the owner lessor or mortgagee to deregister the aircraft from the aircraft register without the cooperation of the lessee. As you touched on, Melissa, Deregistration can be achieved either through reliance on a dereg power of attorney or IDERA under the convention, or simply by reason of a person's status as an owner lessor or mortgagee of the aircraft without reliance on any such dereg power or IDERA. That's right, Graham. And local counsel are also going to be able to advise us as to whether our client can exercise any self-help remedies, which, as we mentioned, basically allow an owner or creditor to take proactive steps to take control of their aircraft without needing a court order. As I mentioned, things tend to be simpler where the Cape Town Convention applies, but even then there can be nuances and application in each jurisdiction. So local law advice really is critical. It's also worth pointing out that there may be liens that trump an owner's ownership rights or a secured creditor's rights in the aircraft. So if the aircraft is in maintenance, there could, for example, be preferential liens over the aircraft that will need to be cleared. There could then be fleet-wide liens. So, for example, in Europe, liens in respect of unpaid air navigation charges attributable to a particular aircraft in an operator's fleet can attach to any other aircraft in that operator's fleet, regardless of the fact that the owners of such aircraft may be different. Finally, there could be non-consensual liens that arise by operation of law and not by agreement between a person with rights in the aircraft and the lien holder. That's very true, Graham. And so going back to the metal, then the actual aircraft is obviously one part, but of equal value and importance are the aircraft records, as asset values can be seriously diminished without them. So it's critical that plans are made to recover these from wherever they are being held, either by the airline itself or the airline's MRO. It all comes down to preparation and planning from the outset so that the creditor and its team have a clear roadmap setting out all the action points that need to be taken and by whom. Absolutely. Preparation and planning is key to all this, and getting your hands on those aircraft records is, of course, crucial. So to recap, unless you either have a consensual return or are able to exercise self-help remedies, then subject again to local council's advice, it's quite likely that some form of court order may well be needed to gain control of the aircraft. If council advises that lengthy and costly court proceedings will be required, then it may be worth considering the aircraft's flight routes and whether it can be repossessed in a more creditor-friendly jurisdiction. 
One crucial initial step is for local counsel in any relevant jurisdiction to advise if a judgment obtained from the courts under the governing law of the contracts is going to be swiftly recognised in the local courts or whether it's preferable to seek a court order in the local jurisdiction. Here, timing and costs are going to be the key drivers. Typically, the type of order obtained takes the form of an application for interim injunctive relief. In most cases, the effect of that order will not result in the repossession, but rather the detention of an aircraft, meaning that the creditor will not always be able to deregister and fly the aircraft away at its will. Notwithstanding that, it's almost always in the creditor's best interest to gain physical, albeit limited, control of the aircraft without delay. Simple physical control, as opposed to full repossession, can often be acquired more quickly and therefore less expensively through some form of freezing order or other form of injunctive order, such as a replevin writ. And going back quickly to the preparation side of things, Graham, then then there are a raft of more practical and logistical issues that need to be considered and put in place in parallel. It's critical to have flight schedule visibility so that arrangements such as facility and ramp access and access for contract flight crew can be made wherever required in advance, including ensuring ground handling, insurance, and storage are all in place. There may also be some form of export duties or fees that have to be paid to ensure the aircraft can be flown out. There are simply so many moving parts here that it comes back to the planning again. Melissa, one question that we often hear from clients in these scenarios is around engines and what happens if, say, a third party's engine is installed on our client's airframe. Can you briefly explain how this works out in practice? Absolutely. So if the Cape Town Convention applies, the situation tends to be simpler once again, since Cape Town overrides any national laws that might otherwise apply the accession doctrine. If the doctrine of accession were to apply, the airframe owner technically would hold title to the installed third-party engine and not its own original engine. These laws are luckily not that common anymore, and if they do exist, they can be mitigated by recognition of rights agreements with other lessors and creditors. Engine nameplates are also helpful in this scenario uh, where the engine is off-wing since they put other creditors on notice of your interest in the engine. So if a third party's engine is installed on our client's airframe, then in practical terms, this shouldn't hold up repossession of the aircraft in what's typically obviously a very time-sensitive scenario. Once the aircraft has been secured, then arrangements can be made for the removal of the third party's engine. Conversely, if it's your engine on someone else's airframe, then prior to taking any formal steps to repossess, dialogue with the airline is again the best place to start, ideally resulting in a consensual engine swap. Dialogue with the airline's other lessors and creditors may also be helpful in this scenario, and if all else fails, a separate physical repossession of the removed engine may be needed. So if we were to sum up what we talked about here in a simple sentence, dialogue and planning are the key ingredients to a successful repossession. Definitely, Graham. And luckily, our industry is very collaborative and close-knit, so the resources are always close at hand. And before we wrap things up, it's worth mentioning the Pillsbury World Aircraft Repossession Index. We will very shortly be publishing the fourth edition, which will cover 111 jurisdictions and provide, I think, a very different approach to the typical law firm publication. So please stay tuned for that, and please get in touch with either Graham or myself if you have any questions. Nice plug, Melissa. Well, look, that's all we have time for. We hope that you've enjoyed this. And if so, please do give it a big thumbs up on whatever media platform you've listened to it on. And look out for further editions of our in-flight audio podcasts in the future.